Welcome to the Appalachian Baptist Network. We seek to equip, encourage, and engage pastors and church leaders in the Appalachian region. We focus on having conversations on church revitalization in the mountains and beyond. Your hosts are Matthew Jacobs, Brent Snyder, Jacob Gwynn, and Travis Tyler. Welcome back to the Appalachian Baptist Network. I'm your host, Travis, and joining me again today is Jacob, Brent, Matthew, and Big T again. So today we're going to be discussing the history of Appalachian, and so let's just get right into it. Who were the first Appalachians? I, I would say would be a lot of the Cherokee Indians and uh, those who were here long before anyone else. Yeah, so you've got the Cherokee Indians. And let's, let's, let's uh, think about this. How many of you all, somebody in your family, I guess not so much you, maybe not you either. Yes, me. My okay, dad's family is from the mountains of North Carolina. Okay, maybe you then. Uh, I know for sure my grandmother's maiden name was Hauk. And so there is a direct lineage. You can't tell it from my reddish skin now, but I've been told that we are descended from Cherokee people. And I think most Appalachians have Cherokee blood pumping through their veins. It may it may be watered down with a little bit of Welsh or a little bit of Scottish, Scottish or Irish mm. or German or even some blood mm. from Africa. But we're, we're a bit of a mixed bag here, aren't we? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, anybody you talk to has got somebody that say, well, there's a little bit of Cherokee in me. And uh, I think most of us probably do have a little bit of Cherokee in us. Yeah. So let's, let's jump right into it here. The first interaction that Appalachians had with Europeans, the original Appalachians, First Nations here, who was it? Soto. And how did that go? Not too good. Was it, what, do you, what do you mean? Let's, let's bring some clarity on there. Disease, death, murder, some dark days. I think he was a little convinced there was gold in them there hills, wasn't he? Yeah, he he was he was a little bit different. He uh, he, he he came in in uh, Florida and made his way through Georgia, Alabama, and North Carolina, South Carolina, and he was in search of gold as they found in the New World, but he did not know that the gold was not here, and still is not gold here today. <laughs> that, that is that is debatable. I would oh, say it, it would not when be. the sun comes over the mountains, yes. that is gold to my eyes. Or in my case, the, the real gold is the brown trout. And the brown trout, there you go. But but the I think but, but I think Matthew's on to something that even early on, I think with the which is Appalachian culture was is just this exploitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So DeSoto comes through here. He is he's a gold crazed, looking for this gold. He's torturing Native Americans, trying to find it, and unsuccessful. Ends up packing it up and leaving. But then we see waves of Europeans settling into Appalachia. Well, this creates a bit of tension, right? And in the mid-1700s here, uh, we see uh, waves of people coming in from Scotland, from Ireland, Western European, from uh, Germany. And uh, we also see Africans being brought in, right? They're being brought in on the slave trade. So we're, we're seeing quite a bit of diversity entering in here, but tensions are mounting between these white settlers and their Cherokee counterparts. How does this end? The Trail of Tears. 
one of the darkest moments in U.S. history, perhaps, right? I mean, look, let's just call this what it is. It was really almost a form of genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the Trail of Tears, the Indian Removal Act of 1830. In 1834, the majority of original Native Americans had either died or been relocated from the Appalachian Mountains. There was a band of about 1,400 Cherokee who fled deep into the mountains and became the forebearers of the eastern band of the Cherokee that remain today. And I think they're doing quite well with their casinos, right? You brothers over in North Carolina there? Yes, yes, they are. And and something else they're actually really, really good at, um, because we have students that wrestle. They're insanely good wrestlers. Really? Yes. Like over there at Swain County, Cherokee, that area that they are they, they dominate hmm. they dominate that's good I tell you what if you we had to go over there for a class at ETSU and I took one in Native American studies and it was like all these senior adults just gambling away their social security basically I mean that's they were some of them sitting there in diapers and I don't know if it was because they had bladder control issues or they just didn't want to leave their slut, lucky slot machines but that's basically what it was and it was sort of a Sad thing. Anyway, moving on. We have the next major event in Appalachia. is a major event in U.S. Uh, history, the Civil War, which was a unique thing. Well, don't forget the Revolutionary area. War. Well, I was going to talk about that okay. in the stereotypes. But it, since you opened it up, let's go. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just thinking as a, as a Tennessean that uh, we were the volunteer state. And I think it's important to, to remember that uh, many mountain men came over and in Tennessee and West North Carolina who helped fought and in the militia and in many ways helped uh, our nation gain its independence. The over-mountain men were considered brave and it was their long rifles that helped win the Revolutionary War and drive the British out. Uh, so the Civil War is next here. And in the Civil War, we see... Uh, a unique thing happening in this area, which is like northeast Tennessee and I guess northern western North Carolina. Is that how you say it? Northern western or is it northwestern? Northwestern. Northwestern. Okay, I didn't know. I mean, you like to throw the urns in there. I didn't know where the line was. So, no be the urns. You need to know where you're going. All right, excuse me. Go ahead. But uh, so here we had families that were split between north and south, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, almost like across the street. I mean, you know, they say it was a war brother against brother. Well, it was felt right here in central Appalachia. Let's talk about what happened after the Civil War is over. How did, how did Appalachia do? Well, you know, the you know, history, they talk about Reconstruction and all the poverty, but the reality is, is most of the region was poor to begin with, so in some ways it wasn't like there was a major effect. If anything, it was more... The effects of, I think, families being split apart by the war and um, even some of that identity that people had with each other being fractured. The Appalachian Mountains offered some good resources. Mm-hmm. There was timber here. There is coal here. Or there was. I guess there still is some. There is um, hydroelectric power would later be developed. Speaking yes. of which, let, let's talk about the hydroelectric power. The re, you know, a lot of people in Congress talk about renewable energy like it's some kind of a new concept. But we've had hydroelectric power in Elizabethan for 100 years, Jacob. I mean, something like that. Oh, yeah. It's been, uh, it's been well over 100 years um, since uh, 
you know, even in our, our region where they uh, flooded this here valley and uh, they lit up the whole city for us. Mm -hmm. uh, there, uh, there is a little bit of tension, though, on the hydroelectric power, right? Because I, I uh, had a friend come in from out of town and he just could not believe that there were two towns flooded at the bottom of Watauga Lake. Yeah, you know, that there's still some animosity. I think that's one of the things we talk about, uh, the history of, uh, of the culture or anything, is that in many ways, I think Brent alluded to us in an episode or so ago, is that uh, it's hard to get over uh, uh, generations of, of frustration and anger. And the same is true today, that there are people who are still frustrated about, about their town being destroyed so that, uh, so that the lake could be put in, the dam could be put in, and, and really bring electricity everywhere. So yeah, this well, is the thing. From an outsider's perspective, people loved TVA with what they did building that because what it created was the best year-round fly fishing streams in eastern North Carolina with the South Holston and the Watauga River. Just throwing that one out there. <laughs> yeah, because you have the really cool water, which is the perfect conditions for trout. Year-round. Mm -hmm. Year-round. It year -round. is year year-round. There is not a month in the year where you are not going to go catch a huge brown trout on either one of those streams. I mean, the next closest area where you're going to find ideal trout waters is what? The Rocky Mountains, probably? That, that, that would be the, the ideal. Montana. Like, Montana, Montana is the place people think of. Um, but in eastern North Carolina, eastern part of the United States, I have a friend from Baltimore that comes down here every year to go fly fishing in the South Holston Watauga River. In addition to Butler, as Jacob was talking about, there's also Fish Springs is the other town. And, and there's a song that uh, immortalizes this situation called Half Mile Down. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to play some of that for you um, and here in a little bit. But it immortalizes the whole um, attitude towards the situation and the hurts of the people in, that com in those communities uh, once the water was poured into that valley and created uh, the lake of Watauga Lake. That Watauga Lake, Norris Lake, Boone Lake, the list goes on and on. Many areas that were flooded were considered prime farmland. They were uh, lands that families had occupied for several generations. So you could see why it maybe created some bitter feelings. So, All right, so here's, here's my next question here. Is just as a quick reflection and a question here, and, and this will be kind of where we take this. Uh, given this history of exploitation, and, and I would say it, it kind of probably created some of the stereotypes. We're going to do a whole episode on stereotypes here next, but uh, how might this long history of being exploited shape the spiritual beliefs and practices of Appalachian people? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, I used to be in Kentucky as well, serving, and uh, you know we would we would take time and go to Eastern Kentucky, and oftentimes uh, trying to reach out to people there and even offering things like medical clinics and things like that. People were always very skeptical of of trying to reach out because there's just been years of people exploiting them, and I think in many ways here, even in East Tennessee, there, there's some degree when uh, when trying to to help people and and really encourage them and help them walk through life. I think sometimes there is a sense of hesitancy because they've been exploited for years. Well, and I mean, grow, growing up in the culture, there is, there's definitely a resistance to change in all aspects of life. I mean, that extends far beyond just 
church culture, and I think the terminology you were from off, I think there's, I think there's some importance in in that terminology because it's it's not like you were from this geographical area and so we're standoffish or you're from this you're just not from around here and so anywhere anyone that's not from around here there's sort of this wall that's put up because typically when someone from off comes they come and they want to change something and so um, you know that's that there is a hesitancy and when someone comes from off you know well they can't be here for anything other than to change yeah. so what we refer to in history as the carpetbagger the person that come from the north and came in to, to export southern areas mm-hmm. I do think that Appalachia has made other areas richer you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. Uh, because people have come in taken the wealth from this land and brought it back to where they were from that's a good point mm-hmm. The story that I heard once was that there was uh, someone from out of town who was driving down the road and saw um, a mountain man carrying a chain up the hill. And the man pulled over and got out of his vehicle and went over to the guy and said, Hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm pulling a chain. And, and the mountain man says, and the other guy says, Well, why are you doing that? He says, it's better than pushing it. And uh, to me, you know, that talks about exactly what Brent talked about being from off, being not understanding the Appalachian way of doing things. It's not bad, it's different. And I think that a lot of people who come up to our region, our area, look at it from the perspective of that's just really unusual. And the people who live here is like, well, that's how we do it here. I think creates, uh, you know, we talk about just even in you know, the different areas, there is an identity and there's a closeness and a hospitality there. But at the same time, there is also a sense of independence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that when somebody does come in from, from the outside, from off, that there is a sense of independence that, that we don't need help. We're fine. We'll, we will do it the way we've done it because uh, we, we know we can. My wife used to work for the Kentucky Baptist Convention and they would often do disaster relief. And uh, they're... I guess one of the most common natural disasters that happens in Appalachia, I would say, is flooding. And so there was an area of eastern Kentucky that was flooded, but eastern Kentucky is very much Appalachian culture, and they had to use their local missionary there. And it was interesting because these teams would get these assignments, and they would try to go knock on the door and say, hey, we're from the Kentucky Baptist Convention Disaster Relief Team. We're here to help with the mud out. And the guy would look at him and say, thanks, but no thanks, you know. But then they got the local missionary that everybody knew there in eastern Kentucky to go to the door with him, same house. Oh, they're with you? They're fine. They can come in and help me. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a hesitancy to even let people help mm-hmm. unless somebody from Appalachia that they know and trust will vouch for them. And I think it's tied to those, that long history of exploitation. Yeah. And I think that... That it connects to the church too. Uh, you think about in the church that oftentimes, you know, I, I think about here in Tennessee, East Tennessee, is that uh, you know our own state convention. Oftentimes, it's well, those are boys and their ideas here in Nashville, mm-hmm. and we've got our own ideas. And so, oftentimes, you can have better uh, better meetings with churches and encouragement through just local partners and, and people that understand just the culture, as opposed to bringing somebody in from the outside. Oh, I'm sure that's probably the feel over in Western North Carolina with the uh, state convention in where Raleigh. That's where yeah, it, Cary. actually Cary. Cary. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You're exactly right. Um, I know of churches having been working with many in, in the Western North Carolina area who 
um, they're looking for a pastor. And instead of wanting to go through um, Cary, they'd want to rather go through the uh, the local association, someone who, who knew them and understood their needs. Um, and then sometimes a uh, church is in trouble. Instead of reaching out to Cary, they would reach more local to maybe another church, specifically through the association. So definitely the attitude is, you're from off, you don't understand us, and we don't want your help can sometimes be communicated. That's even reflected in the giving in Avery County. I mean, it's not it's not just one or two churches. I would say that that maybe even as many as half the churches in the Avery Association give more financially to the ABA, the Avery Baptist Association, than they do to the state convention or to the SBC, mm-hmm. to the cooperative program. But part of that also is is the identity is... If we want to look politically, the mountains of North Carolina, with the exception of Boone and Asheville, are about as hardcore red as you're going to find politically. Mm-hmm. And so when they see Raleigh or they see Cary or they see any of the other big cities, they see them as flaming liberals mm-hmm. and that we don't want none of that here. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's just not going to work here. But the funny thing of it is, in this last election, most of the folks that were voted in, in fact, uh, Watauga County, who typically would be red, it actually turned blue because of yeah. the influence of the university and the, and the school, what's going on there. Um, it's just, uh, I think one thing that you find, too, is makes Boone unique, and, and maybe somewhere here also in, in East Tennessee, but it's basically that you've got the, the locals who are very conservative in the way that they do things and are having to deal with this these folks from off who are not conservative, there's a, there's a deep line drawn in the community. In fact, you've got about 19,000 students and professors and staff at ASU, and there's about 18,000 actual residents who live and work in Boone. So you've got a, an interesting sort of balance going on there. Um, but the school is talking about bringing in 500 uh, new students every semester so about a thousand new kids each 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 school year so uh, you've got the, the locals who feel like they're somewhat up a, an uphill battle with the school but at the same time they sort of put a bubble over the school and say we're going to do what we're going to do and the school's going to do what they're going to do but that's not who Boone really is Boone really is us you know um, speaking about shaping their practices and how churches interact with pastors uh, when I was being interviewed for the church I'm serving now, uh, which is in Appalachia here in Elizabethan, I, re- I asked, one thing I always ask is, why, why are you interested in me as a pastor? Because, I, you know, as a pastor, here's what you hope. You hope to hear, you're a great expositor of the Word of God. Your leadership abilities are great. You know, something in that camp or, you know. And, and you know what the answer was? You're from around here. You're one of us. Mm-hmm. You're one of us. Yeah, that was the number one answer in that pastor search committee, and so you know that has implications. You know that has implications. It almost is more important where you're from, who your parents are, where you where they came from, even than where you were educated, mm-hmm. uh, where you received your training, and what experience you may have, which forms some interesting churches now, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of churches in our area that uh, have a lot of ministers that lack training, right? 
Uh, and I'm very thankful for those that pursue it. I'm a big believer in theological education. I think it is crucial and important. And you, and you have, I think, the emerging of mysticism out of this. You know, they're not looking to institutions for guidance and help. They're looking to mysticism, right? And, and it takes a lot of forms, right? Let's, let's talk about mysticism real quick here and how that, how that may have been out of that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure where it would the root would come from, but I, I think just in interactions with people, a lot of people talked about the idea of um, kind of seeking God's will, and sometimes it's oftentimes outside of, of the bounds of Scripture. It's kind of looking for a sign or um, looking for some kind of almost word given to me that's kind of outside of Scripture. Yeah, I, I think that uh, people long for their relationship with the Lord to take a form that I would maybe argue is outside what the Bible prescribes it may be. Uh, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 that God spoke in the past in many ways, right? And I know that mystics love, there's a, there's a pastor that's in Atlanta, I won't mention his name, but he, he loves to talk as if God speaks to him like on a cell phone. And, and people here, they'll eat that up. You know, I think it has influenced a lot of people. They're, they're just, you know, what's the word from God? You know, well, it's the word of God, right? It's not something that you kind of conjure up necessarily. It's not outside and undercutting the authority of Scripture. You know, so. so we've got to learn to understand its sufficiency. Well, that's right. You want, want to have the word stand as sufficient in itself. But, but to some degree, if we want to go into that arena, in Appalachia, from my experience, is there is also a lack of trust in the institution as far as schooling. Oh, I think so. I mean, e- even if we went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary the or Amen. the Southeastern. Um, Say it again. The, the Southeastern. Southeastern is <laughs> that there is this, this pushback, at least in my community, most people have not gone and gotten a four-year degree or even a master's degree and so there's this pushback like well we don't really need one of you educated preachers there is that and i've even heard jokes in the area of they'll refer to it as cemetery and not seminary Mm -hmm. and depending on which school they're talking about that may be true but (laughs) but but even in my context like i've always i heard people that that, that left uh, one tradition so to speak and came and they're like we could tell you've got a degree because you don't yell every sunday yeah yeah, one of my church members here made this comment to me, and I laughed because it's true. And he said, well, look, brother, he said, the less prep work you've done, the louder you yell when you make that point. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a little bit of truth in that. Uh, you know, it takes a while to really suss out what God is saying, what he means, and then what those implications and applications are. Um, but the, the mysticism is definitely, I think, shaped out of this lack of trust of the progress that's been come in you know the institutes have tried to bring solutions and yet have just kind of stripped the the land of its wealth uh so anyway if i might um a couple comments on the mysticism is that uh, when we take a look at um the the background the family background of our area is coming out of a celtic background mentality uh, bringing that over with them when they came to america um, and you look at some of the history, and particularly uh, Three Forks um, Baptist Association was birthed out of 
the driving of people out of Charlotte by uh, General Tryon, who was a, a puppeteer, puppet of the uh, king of England, he drove them up the mountains because he was trying to get the Protestants to become Anglican. He wanted them to, to come under the king, and the Protestants said, no way. But at the same time, they were driven up the mountains. So were the thieves and other people who were completely against the king. They went up the mountains too. Communities were formed. And as they were formed, there was no magistrate. There was no police. There was no one to call out what was going on. The churches were birthed throughout that Appalachian region, in that area in particular, to become that magistrate. And a lot of those Preachers were uh, looked at as beyond just preachers of God's word. They were looked at as the law for that community, whether that was moral law or whether that was actually physically coming in and taking care of a situation because there was no magistrate. I think some of that mysticism still floats in our churches today. They look at pastors and they see them as high and mighty and they want to see the pastor be that person historically that they've understood to be a pastor uh, but today's world is very different than yesterday's world because we obviously have those magistrates and uh, legal processes in place now that we didn't have then. So I think a lot of that is birthed through the families that helped birth those churches. So it's filtered down through the generations. So it exists uh, maybe in some minute ways, but also maybe some very overt ways in our churches. Yeah, I, one thing I've found is there is a respect, a higher respect for pastors in Appalachia, yes. certainly more so than in the Midwest. Wouldn't you agree with that, Jacob? Oh, yeah, I would agree. Uh, I, I feel like there's a, a lot of respect, but but even a lot of, in many ways, trust as well. Mm. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of caring for the family, and, and so there is a lot of appreciation, way more than, than any other region I've ever lived in before, and obviously being connected to the area, but... Um, you think of Midwest, I mean, I, you know, people talk about Pastor Appreciation Month. It was kind of a, a slap on the back and said, thank you. If you got that. He, he, here, here, <laughs> here in this region, it's usually like, hey, we want to throw you a, a cookout. We want to, you know, yeah. we'll barbecue for you. We'll, you know, we're going to do a, a big shindig and, and take care of you and your family because I, I think there is a sense of reverence and, and love for that family. Uh, I couldn't agree more. That's one of the joys of serving here is that... Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a there is a love for the pastor and the pastor's family. And oh, my yeah. kids and my wife have been loved on. Well, we're out of time today. We're actually a few minutes over, but that's okay. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us next time. We're going to take a look at uh, unfair stereotypes in Appalachian culture, and uh, we're going to talk about the impact that may have had for us as pastors. Till next time, remember to say Appalachia correctly, friends. Till then.